Hi folks. So it's Sunday night and I'm back and um, I just, I wanted to do a read aloud of a blog post. Um, I actually, I just put it up a couple of hours ago, but it's something I've been working on for the past three weeks or so. And I feel it's pretty important. So I wanted to, um, rather than going back into the older blog post, go ahead and do an audio of this one so that I could put it out on the podcast stream. And um, it actually has a really extensive appendix of screenshots, like 150 screenshots um, that I pulled together and organized. So I'm gonna put the link uh, to the blog post in the comment section when I'm done. Um, and actually, you know what? I can do it now. I can, so I'll put it here. Um, forgot I could do this. So yeah, so I just put it in the, the comments. And so that's the actual post and it has an extensive appendix at the end. And um, it actually has to do with a, uh, a two-day sort of online international conference that was done in early September. And it was around, it was called a crypto symposium, but it was put together by uh, people who sort of self-identify as crypto skeptics. And um, so I'm always very interested in sort of the narrative arc of all of this and sort of how they're steering the conversation. Um, and so I ended up writing a blog post to sort of unpack uh, both the initial optics of what this event was and then digging into who actually was represented and how they were represented and then maybe the bits that they weren't so um, clear about who was who and um, to sort of thread it together to say in some ways I feel like what's happening is this Hegelian dialectic um, where you create, you know, it's the problem reaction solution, right? And I feel like in some ways uh, the sort of structuring of the narrative around uh, the critique of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and NFTs is actually setting the stage for a resolution that will be some sort of better regulated, quote, you know, it's all air quotes on this, like better regulated, uh, tokenized, uh, democratic participatory system that will somehow try to thread the needle between sort of the libertarian, you know, faith-based conservative interests and sort of progressive cooperative people. And then they will all join and hold hands under the, the umbrella of global tokenomics and peace and harmony and happiness and, you know, universal basic income or something like that. Um, and so anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and read this blog post. Um, and I, I will be interested in, in what the thoughts that you have about it. And then also, like, once you actually have a chance to see all of the screenshots that really lay out who all of these people are, um, that I feel like this, what's happening is a setup for social impact finance tied to digital identity and tokenization. That's going to be branded and sold to either end of the political spectrum under sort of false pretenses to get everybody on onto the well-regulated blockchain. So I called it, uh, what stage are we on? Um, immersive storytelling, Hegelian dialectic, and crypto spectacle. Because I do think that it is almost like a play within a play within a play. And, and sometimes who knows who are the actors and who is the audience and what the actual uh, script is. So I just posted this today. Um, uh, for the past seven years, a dear friend who has been in the trenches with me fighting the securitization of vulnerable populations as human data commodities on blockchain. 
She got drawn into a two-day webinar with well-known influencers in the crypto skeptic space. And she had been excited about the opportunity to connect with an international network of people working on shared concerns. And I know that hopeful feeling one gets when encountering a new group of folks who seem to get some parts of the puzzle, but still have significant gaps. It is a tantalizing opportunity to think that you may be able to help fill in some of those holes and make a difference and bring clarity to our collective understanding of the problem. And, and that's where I was like at the beginning of lockdowns. I'm like, hey, y'all, wait a minute. There's this huge piece, you know, missing that's, you know, digital identity and social impact finance. Like here, here, take it, like incorporate it. And that, that never happens. But you're always excited at the prospect that you might finally get to meet the group of people who actually um, is interested in incorporating your information. So this is, this is my friend. And she did a great job on her presentation. Uh, now this was a two day conference with dozens and dozens of panelists and she only had 10 minutes uh, or 15 minutes. But um, in, in the link to the, if you follow the link to the post, it, it is keyed up to her presentation. Um, and she spoke in, in as much detail as possible in the 10 to 15 minutes she was allocated around uh, social impact bonds and blockchain identity and uh, the way in which that these were particularly targeting like marginalized communities and children in the ed education space. So uh, this friend was a person who had worked with the NAACP at the state and national level uh, to pass a resolution opposing the requirement that any person obtains a blockchain digital identity to access public services, including public education, uh, health services, food assistance, shelter or legal support in the judicial system. And you can find that text of that very timely, which was July of 2019, uh, resolution here, and then I have the link there, simply do a keyword search for blockchain. So again, at the time we were very hopeful about this, that this seemed like a really a landmark thing saying that, not that people weren't allowed to have a digital identity if they want to or have their own digital wallet, but that as a condition of accessing a public service, like being a public school student, that you would not be compelled to accept a digital identity. Um, the same to get food assistance or these things, because we could see the thought experiments coming down in the, like, the state of Illinois task, blockchain task force, that they're like, oh, how could we use these smart contracts? How could we use them to nudge people and to get them to do what we wanted them to do? And that's not what, I mean, in some ways, maybe that is what the social safety net was always set up to do, and we didn't realize it was over, always some sort of cybernetic tokenized trap. Um, but theoretically, from the standpoint of people who actually care about those in need, it shouldn't be that, right? It should not be that. So um, that that was done. And I have a, a video, a link to a video where she's presenting that at the national floor in Detroit at their gathering, um, uh, and, and it was passed with way majority support, very few people abstaining from that. So this same friend gave me valuable insights into pay for success finance and how it was presenting in Silicon Valley at its earliest stages, because that's where she was. Um, and I wrote a blog post about it at, in all of these early pilot deals in Santa Clara County in December of 2018. And at that time, we had no idea that biocomputation and epigenetics were being woven into prediction markets in human futures. And you can see the interview series that Jason and Leo and I did on atomic ecologies for more context on that. So much has happened over the past five years and so quickly that it's been hard to catch a breath and reflect on where we've been. But what's clear to me is that ties between global finance, emerging tech, and California's fraught and unresolved history of eugenics can no longer be ignored. 
and I'm looking forward to the trip Jason and I have planned to the Eureka State to conduct field visits and to try to rebalance some of these harmful energies in November. And we will keep you updated from the road, so be sure to subscribe to this channel. If it weren't for this friend, I probably wouldn't have taken the time to dive deeply into this anti-crypto spectacle. But I was curious, and to be honest, the more I looked into who was behind the event, the more curious I got. If you follow my work, you'll know I am no fan of cryptocurrency and I see its many failings. My primary concern, however, has always been the smart contract layer, digital identity in smart environments, risk analytics tied to pay for success financial dealings, and speculation on natural life. And while many entered into the blockchain space as a financial hobby, I entered the door where Sean Conway and impact investors planned to carry out data surveillance on toddlers in government-subsidized South African pre-K programs as a test run for global futures trading in behavioral compliance. So yeah, so maybe not such the, the China social credit score thing. Maybe, maybe the, the story is, is more complicated than that. When you enter the invest in kids bonds door, which was the door I came in, knowing that there are plans to create asset backed securities and toddlers and trade them and perhaps short them on global markets, the single minded interrogation of cryptocurrency exchanges and NFT ripoffs feels woefully inadequate. If the stakes weren't so high, it might be amusing to watch folks who've been swimming in the shark-infested waters of financial derivatives for years point fingers decrying crypto Ponzi schemers. Calls for better regulation and professed empathy for those who lost their savings to fraudulent digital money schemes rings a bit hollow once you realize that many of the panelists' livelihoods are actually intertwined in the same financial interests, journalism outlets, and think tanks that were enmeshed in the crash of the global economy via toxic real estate debt products. These are the same folks who are now in the process of developing the risk modeling, tokenomics, and APIs needed to run the smart Ricardian contract, sustainably resilient open air prison. And then I have a screenshot uh, from a slide share from 2012. Um, it was this Kaufman Ready Nation uh, working group. And it says, Kaufman Ready Nation working group finds social impact bonds can help finance early childhood programs, asterisk. Social impact bond SIB programs will be able to reduce pressures on state and federal budgets, improve early childhood development and education, strengthen K-12 education and workforce competitiveness. SIB assets, social impact bond assets, will be able to be, one, bought by for-profit and non-profit investors, two, traded among investors worldwide, and three, aggregated in asset-backed securities. So this is not hidden. This is not hidden, this is in the public. And this is from Robert Duger and Robert Lighton's early childhood pay for success social impact finance, a PKSE bond example. So it was from March 2012. So this is 10 years ago that they're already talking about creating um, asset-backed securities in toddlers. Okay, so when you see, when you're driving through your community and you're seeing signs, yard signs for all day pre-K funding, understand that this is where it goes. Then underneath that, I have a Wall Street Journal article uh, from 2018 that says the grandfather of CDOs, which is collateralized debt obligations, which is what crashed the global economy last time, is trying to do for higher education what he did for mortgages. 
Only it's not just higher education, it's all lifelong learning on the ledger. And his name is Christopher Riccardi. Christopher Riccardi, a formal Merrill Lynch banker, is bringing his experience to student loans. Okay, so the student loans are going all the way back down to, to pre-K. And then I have a, a map that talks about uh, Edley, these income sharing agreements and how they're going to be securitized. So these are all really important images. Our shared mixed reality panopticon is constantly remade through the cognitive warfare of algorithmic information management. Curated language and narrative tropes are strategically wielded in perpetual skirmishes of semiotics and steganography. Every data point you feed to the machine is a psychometric goldmine. They know what you want to hear, they manipulate your hopes and fears and tell you just enough to keep you wondering and coming back for more. We're wandering around in a sugar scape simulation, an artificial society where only a fraction of the world's population comprehends the game's rules. The stakes are how deep the illusion goes. And that's what passes for the resistance as well. The more I research and uh, the more I've come to appreciate the challenge of pinning down reality, each of us lives in our own version of the reality story, burdened by tragically incomplete access to information, misunderstood motivations, hidden alliances, and communication snafus. The world's a stage, and we are players, whether we realize it or not. The master screenwriter tosses out last-minute script edits with plot twists that demand skillful improvisation and suspension of disbelief. The show must go on, and so I keep moving through the next scene and the next act, hoping for moments of clarity as I try to stay ahead of this uh, alt-consensus reality apparatus. I hope that for the small audience that appreciates my outsider mom perspective, I can pierce the veil here or there to warn of potential misdirection, landmines, and conceptual box canyons. And in that spirit, I spent many hours watching videos from this two-day event, scanning the landscape of people and institutions involved. Among them were Adjoint, A-D-J-O-I-N-T, Incorporated, Smart Contract Financial Settlements, Systemics, Ian Griggs Digigold Infrastructure, triple entry accounting, and Ricardian smart contracts. Brookings Institute's Educational Impact Bond and Interspecies Currency, um, the Center for Evidence-Based Management, international NGOs promoting data analytics of the kind that will be needed to run the social impact deals, uh, Bloomberg News, and the Financial Times. And there were mid-level digerati promoting books and blogs whose, whose, whose larger purpose, as I saw it, seemed to be to obscure and dismiss the predatory nature of tokenized life in Web 3.0. Now, the symposium was organized by self-described crypto skeptics Stephen Deal and Darren Singh, finance sector programmers. And they have been quite effective stepping into their assigned enthusiastic callow geek roles. Just a couple of well-intentioned young men looking to save the world from Bitcoin libertarians and Ponzi schemes, right? But if you pull back the curtain, the plot thickens a bit. The excerpt below is from the transcript of Deal's presentation on October 13th, 2017 at Materium's Internet of Agreements conference in London, which was focusing on coded law and smart contracts. And so I have an image of a young uh, Mr. Deal standing in front of the podium and uh, there's an, uh, the screen behind him is his screenshot presentation, Smart Contracts for New Entrepreneurs, Stephen Deal, uh, October 16th, 2017. And uh, it has the Internet of Agreements and it says that the banner behind him has a materium, a joint, a compound, coin fund, you know, various entities. So this is a quote from the transcript. What does a joint incorporated do? 
I'm the CTO of this company and we're here in London. The boring side of our business is that we create settlement networks for creating executable forms of industry standard contracts like ISDA, and that means uh, International Swaps and Derivatives Association, and EFET, the European Federation of Energy Traders Agreements, for modeling the structure of financial projects such as derivatives, swaps, options on mutually distributed ledgers. Okay, so he's there talking smart contracts and distributed ledgers. I don't work in the public chain database at a joint. I work on a private server networks between financial institutions. Uh, primarily, we look at modeling executable forms of o OTC, which I think is over-the-counter derivatives contracts. And I'm particularly focused on taking a description of the semantics that involve the temporary rights and obligations of counterparties that are party to derivative trade modeling as code, and then putting that on a distributed database so that we can have more efficient settlement systems. The more interesting part of our business is that we also spend quite a bit of time doing research and development on what I call, would call third and fourth generation blockchains. So this is the person later on who's saying that, like running a conference where most of the people around are saying that there's no use case for blockchains. But he, in 2017, is saying that he's working on third and fourth generation blockchains. I do a bunch of research and development on verifiable computing and formal methods, things like ZK SNARKs, which is a zero-knowledge, succinct, non-interactive argument of knowledge, and uh, reasoning about the semantics of contracts formally. And that's the end of the quote, and that's from Stephen Deal. So about this conference, so Vinaya Gupta is the head of Materium, and he was the host of the event where Deal spoke. He, he was the strategic architect of Joseph Lubin's Consensus, an organization that has been working diligently since 2017 to frame out the infrastructure needed to scale DeFi, decentralized finance, refi, regenerative finance, and quote unquote green pill social impact finance. This isn't just about making ESG, that's the environmental social governance portfolios, and stakeholder capitalism more accountable and efficient. A second goal, which may ultimately supersede creative debt finance as a force shaping society to fit cybernetic circuits, is the aggregation of impact tokens meant to fuel the machine learning that will refine artificial intelligence and possibly catalyze the singularity. Throughout the conference, most panelists downplayed Web3, this is Deal's conference, and blockchain, often asserting that there were no viable use cases and that these technologies didn't solve any existing need. This was repeatedly stated by a gentleman who had formerly served as the managing director in JP Morgan's global technology office and as vice president of their derivatives operations. His point was that distributed ledger technology is not new, and that is correct. The concept date backs at least to the 90s. However, at that time, there wasn't the capacity to scale the sensor networks, the unique digital identifiers, the NEMS and MEMS, the nano and micro electromechanical systems required to build out socio-technical cyber-physical environments. This gentleman left JP Morgan in 2017 for greener fintech consulting pastures. But had he stayed through the 2020 sale of the firm's Quorum Enterprise Ethereum platform to consensus, he likely would have had a better handle on the role the smart contract layer plays in the financial settlement space. It is interesting to consider how derivatives and human capital management could one day interface in a matrix of embedded contracts operating in service of prediction markets and real-time risk analysis.
One place to keep an eye on is Dallas, Texas, where the Strive Together affiliate Commit has partnered with JP Morgan on blockchain cradle-to-career pathways for opportunity youth. For now, most people don't recognize these pathways as cybernetics governance systems mediated by blockchain technology. Greenlight credentials, competency-based transcripts will store health and mental health data as badges too. And they have these red critter NFT good behavior tokens to train children to jump through hoops for scrip at the ed tech equivalent of the company store. And both are 21st century upgrades to BF Skinner's pigeon pellets. But rather than being trained to guide missiles with programmed pecking, tomorrow's children will be taught to code immersive reality and digital trust. The world planned by the technician class is meant to run on tokens. And Eric Schmidt and Chainlink Sergei Nazarov are super excited about that. And I have a link to that. In such a future, we would have infinite contracts with the built environment that will require us to deposit the proper token to activate X, Y, or Z opportunity. It is a whole new perspective on the payment space that requires us to reimagine money more abstractly, more like my friend Jason Bosch's idea of freedom tokens. And as such, the payment space is something we should be keeping an eye on, especially now that cross-border payments get muddier in an immersive reality where we may end up exchanging tokens with virtual machines that live in the cloud. I found it interesting that the former chair of PSR, which is the payment systems regulator, was a symposium panelist. PSR is an NGO uh, created as part of the UK Treasury's Financial Services Banking Reform Act of 2013. Uh, this woman, she moderated a discussion about crypto regulation with a corporate governance law professor based at Santa Clara, which is the Jesuit university that is embedded in early California pay for success pilot deals. And an SEC cybercrime investigator who teaches at Georgetown and Duke Law. Now, all three of these schools are major promoters of social impact finance. The cybercrime investigator didn't seem to realize that Web3 is about digital identity and the industrial internet of things, prerequisites for ushering in globalization 4.0 and remote robotic labor. Crypto wallets and bored ape NFTs have been offered as Hegelian dialectic appetizers, delectable snacks, and a, and a caloric boost to fuel narratives meant to nudge us towards quote-unquote solutions we'll, we're to, we will be told will restore civil society's social contract. Such an approach could meld distributed ledger technology and ubiquitous edge computing to serve us better. All of that fraudulent greed and crassness we find assaulting our senses in the Bitcoin space promises to be cleared away as so many crumbs on a fine linen tablecloth before the main course, UN Sustainable Development Goal-aligned e-government solutions, wedded to Microsoft's planetary computer and Irvin Laszlo's world homeostat arrives. For that is the end game, managed life, Kubernetes, cybernetics, using nanotech track and trace energy economics, interwoven with infinite unseen contractual arrangements. Maybe the guy's long thread making a case for blockchain and Web3 being inconsequential was an inside joke. And I have that in the post. It's very long. It pretty much says, don't worry, it's nothing, nothing to worry about here, nothing to see, blockchain, Web3, nonsense, it's only for criminals. Of course, that thread was posted on April Fool's Day. So these folks love signaling each other, presuming the rest of us are dupes and oblivious to their ongoing rotten game. 
If and when the Web3 rollout will become viable remains an open question. However, in my opinion, it would be folly to imagine the financial interests standing behind Adjoint Inc. <laughs> Stephen Deal and Darren Singh aren't pouring money into blockchain, machine learning, sensor networks, molecular engineering, and quantum computing to realize this mechanical delusion. Throughout uh, those two days, there was sleight of hand uplifting blockchain and Bitcoin as straw men to be gleefully knocked down. These people are experts, and they must know where things are headed with DLT, distributed ledger technology, in the financial derivative space. Or if they don't, they should have their salaries and book royalties held back until they get up to speed. And then I inserted a couple of images. I have uh, Ericsson's uh, Blockchains 5G in the Metaverse is Web3 revolution on, on the horizon. I have Nokia on... Uh, Web3 and cyber-physical systems. Then I have Nippon Telegraph and Telephone on human digital twins. And then I have something from the Institute for the Future's uh, blockchain roadmap uh, that is on automated legal systems. Javel Rodriguez, a hedge fund manager interested in impact finance and diversity, equity, and inclusion, launched a joint in 2016 with Deal and Singh. And by 2018, it had expanded internationally with offices in Houston, London, and Zug, Switzerland, which is the hub of the Crypto Valley. Andras Miklos, formerly a senior project manager at Credit Suisse, where he developed, quote, a business intelligence and benchmarking model for assessing the strategy of the UK private banking business, and also, quote, financial planning model for the Luxembourg platform enhancement strategy of private banking and wealth management division. <laughs> um, uh, briefly headed a joint Zug office before climbing the ladder to become treasurer of the board of Swiss Finance and Technology Association and vice president of digital custody systems for State Street Digital in Zurich. Now it is unclear if a joint is still operating. I could not find a website there was a dead end on the company's LinkedIn page that said no such bucket. And Rodriguez's profile dates his tenure there from August 2016 to August 2021. Now, Darren Sang's LinkedIn features a joint as his current employer. But it seems logical that if that had changed, he would have made those updates prior to this much lauded event. At a 2017 Materium conference, uh, Deal and another panelist, Ian Grigg, who developed third-party accounting and Ricardian contracts, which are legally enforceable smart contracts, mainly for financial instruments in the 1990s. They were interviewed by someone named Jason Love, L-O-U-V. Now, someone gave me a heads up in the comments of one of my videos that Love is an Austin-based practitioner of Anakian chaos magic at Ultraculture. He has written for Vice, Boing Boing, Motherboard, and authored several books, including one on John D. Now, last year, Love interviewed Vinay Gupta, the head of Materium, for his podcast. Gupta is a consultant to the military corporation, uh, to the military corporations and the open source community on how to save the world with blockchain and microinsurance spackle. <laughs> he was among the presenters, although remotely, at the Mormon Transhumanist Association conference on blockchain this past March. That was in Provo, Utah. So then I have a screenshot of Ultra Culture. Uh, the podcast uh, was called Vinay Gupta, Global Resilience Guru on Tantra and Magic. It's episode 15. Um, and then I have a, a picture of the program that I've pulled out often of the Mormon Transhumanist Conference on Blockchain. Uh, Vinay Gupta was 
uh, at the 12.40 time slot, and his talk was called Dealing on the Level, Can Provably Fair Trade Be a Technology of Spiritual Liberation? Okay, so that's putting that together. I sense that the deal Grig Gupta triangle is significant. Web3 is meant to become a matrix of energetic entanglements where money and eventually compliant behavior impact tokens will be exchanged to make social values and relationships visible to the machine where they can be evaluated and regulated. Grig was experimenting with complementary currencies like beautiful money back in 2005-2006 with this digital pressed flower currency project. And that was carried out in association with media artist Johannes Grenzfurthner and philosopher Stefan Lunchinger in Amstetten, Austria. I made a six-minute video about their project, linking it to Mexico's conditional cash transfer program and Julian Huxley's research into the metamorphosis of the axolotl a few weeks ago. And so I have that embedded in the blog post. If you haven't seen it, that's worth watching. Uh, one of the symposium's panelists was affiliated with Brookings Institute, which is a think tank promoting Jonathan Ledgard's interspecies currency. So energy exchanges through metadata tagged digital currency will be mediated through invisible contracts, like all of those terms and conditions boxes we click through to use digital products. You know, the ones most of us don't read, but we click agree anyway. And if we read all the text and didn't agree with some aspect of the arrangement, then what? Another participant represented the Center for Responsible Lending, which is an NGO set up to protect low-income people from predatory debt traps. Now, that organization spun out something called Self-Help, a community development operation active in the affordable housing space. So you can sort of read into that about opportunity zones, and those are spaces where histories of redlining are now being turned into money laundering vehicles for giant real estate portfolio holders. The no protection from gentrification in uh, the opportunity zones. A few years back, Martin Eakes, founder of the Center for Responsible Lending, lauded Bank of America, with whom he had partnered for creating something called safe balance banking, where people uh, would not be able to overdraw their accounts. The spin was about saving people from costly fees, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about IE Digital's shocking wearables that zap a person when they get close to their balance or turn down the heat at their homes. Such things are now possible with Web3 Internet of Things banking. Who is being protected? Families falling into the ever-growing pit comprising the working poor or the too big to fail banks? And then I have a couple of screenshots. The first world's first connected bank will shock you into saving money. This is back in 2016. Um, and what if you don't want a Pavlok shock bracelet linked to your universal basic income debit card? It's not as though you will be able to ask for a custom contract to which you would agree. It's all being rigidly coded into the open, distributed, resilient metaverse ledger or Lamina One. That's Neil Stevenson's thing, the, the open metaverse blockchain layer. The ledger isn't a person by design. They don't want us to trust people who might tap into their humanity and opt to make exceptions to the rules and not carry out the dictates of the code with fidelity. That's why they want to get rid of teachers too, human teachers. So many of the mind games being played out, the polarization and betrayals of confidence and shifting alliances are intended to break ground for the coming mathematical reality written about in 1921 by Yevgeny Zamyatin in his novel about totalitarian world order in we. Trust mathematics, not humans, and that is the prevailing message. So what do you do if you don't agree to the terms but are compelled to use the product anyway?
Well, eventually those terms won't be just for apps, but will be necessary for access to buildings, to mobility solutions, to payment systems, public spaces, and so on. We all check those boxes and we hope our agreement doesn't come back to haunt us in the future. We have no idea about all the things to which we've technically agreed. I mean, they know to hide everything in the fine print. Sometimes they even change the terms and conditions later, sending a courtesy email to keep you advised on the updated rules of the game. I'll bet Stanford smart toilets have lots of fine print. <laughs> now these contracts will be linked to the simulation modeling and predictive analytics around risk. In a presentation given by Vinay Gupta in a 2017 Dutch blockchain coalition gathering called Deep Dive into Identities, How Blockchain Can Change Our World, he describes a future scenario where our digital identities are patched together with sets of claims about us that are backed by insurance guarantees. One of his slides states, as long as someone will insure you, you exist. Think about that. So, um, and I'll just read, this is a screenshot from this video that he gave in 2017. Facts are useless, give me insurance. So think about that in terms of the insurance companies in the space. Seas of little insurance and fact bundles are glue. They could hold together a future society without needing a single all-embracing personal profile or without an unrealistic belief in anonymity. As long as someone will insure you, you exist. This is the world we're allowing to be built for nature and future generations because we cannot or will not make the time to understand what is unfolding. Look at the labyrinth's walls and grab the string and walk out. Another crypto skeptic panelist and affiliate of the Oxford Internet Institute wrote the textbook on in-game virtual economies. <laughs> not unlike a labyrinth and how they were a good thing and they could teach us many lessons. And of course, that is the logical end game for the growth imperative of capital. The next generation, the children, the refugees, the prisoners, the working poor will be coerced into coding a cloud-based empire that are, is interwoven with cutting edge psychological technologies. It will be BF Skinner's maze of tokenized behavior pellets. Thanks to Google, Niantic, and InQtel, we can continue to grow our consumption of goods and services while generating data to fuel the machine learning that seeks to seal the sacred and substitute flimsy, profane simulacra. But of course, no one would want to live inside that story. And so to drive the plot forward, the focus must be kept on use cases around unregulated digital money and ludicrous assets and toxic celebrity. My friend's presentation shown a line off that narrow path, but a person can only do so much with 10 minutes of airtime. Unpacking the implications of what it will mean to live on the blockchain through digitally twinned social constructs mediated by artificial intelligence in an in-depth manner would probably result in most people walking out of the theater prematurely. And they can't have that, right? No, those bigger conversations for now are primarily had in smoky back rooms among the deep-pocketed backers of the big show, the ESG social impact investor crowd. Now, I'll note here that the event included the former head data scientist for Salesforce and Deutsche Bank. Okay, so these are the people pointing fingers at Bitcoin. Now, I'm no fan of Bitcoin or crypto or NFTs, but this guy is the head, was the former head of data science for Salesforce 
and Deutsche Bank. I mean, this is crazy that these are the people who are defending the people, right? <laughs> um, it's just crazy. But he was simply listed as a financial technologist in the NFT section of talking about collectibles, sports collectibles. Like they tucked him in there, right? He got his little cameo, but no one's supposed to know that like the head of, you know, the former data scientist for Deutsche Bank was tucked in among the soccer collectibles. Um, yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, also, the managing director and derivatives for J.P. Morgan. I talked about him. And the head of corporate affairs for Swift, who I also think was like just mentioned as like an amateur observer of financial. She was like the head of corporate affairs for the Swift payment system. It's just crazy. Um, who's more? So this woman, she was with Swift from 2013 to 2019. And more recently, she's been serving as a member of the Bank of England Central Bank Digital Currency Engagement Forum. <sighs> While it may appear to have been a low budget enterprise with videos that have under a thousand views, this symposium was definitely within the sphere of influence of powerful players in the derivative finance and data analytics space. Uh, the event included a keynote by a colleague of Robert Hertzberg, the state senator who's proposing California's digital identity legislation. This US representative from Sherman Oaks, California came out strongly against cryptocurrencies but he's been silent on Web3. Now, there was a former Berkeley professor who rage quit over the amount of crypto money flowing into his department. And as a theoretical example of this sort of dirty money that, and what the projects, this self-described mad scientist offered an institute of demonology in his re remarks as far as like what, a, what this money could be funding, you know, possibly an institute of demonology. <laughs> Um, and that called for me to mind a 1966 article about Kaim uh, uh, Pekaris and the Golem of Rehoboth supercomputer. And so I emailed this guy to see if he knew about that article, but he never replied. I found it interesting that the same person named his firm, one that provides cybersecurity for the unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, that will patrol our shared extended reality prison. He named his company Scary Technologies, S-K-E-R-R-Y, but it's kind of alludes to scary, like frightening. Now he says it refers to, to uh, Neil Gaiman's scaries, uh, which are tiny islands of individual consciousness in his Sandman series, The Game of You. So I'm saying make Bitcoin the bogeyman. Stop short of extending one's analysis to cyber physical environments designed to learn us through digital surveillance including from the bird's eye view of those UAVs that you're providing cybersecurity for. Because if we can silo off uncomfortable information and make it someone else's concern, the story holds together better in our own minds with more explanatory coherence. Seeing a black swan at the beginning of the UK MP's presentation was odd. You know, this guy, Alex Sobel, and I have the picture of that. They inserted a black swan at the beginning. Like, it's just like very, it feels very imprinted. Um, this guy's name was Alex Sobel. Um, he's with the Cooperative Party, and they took advantage of lockdowns to push universal basic income as early as April of 2020. He also happens to be a leader in climate uh, finance, sustainable finance, and uh, leans towards Malthusian population control because it's, you know, green. Several folks from El Salvador were brought in to attest to the ineffectual Bitcoin rollout in their country in tandem with increasingly brutal authoritarian tactics by President Bukele. 
But there was no mention, interestingly, of the 2007 Inter-American Development Bank arrangement that set up conditional cash transfers tied to low-income women and children's education and health compliance in El Salvador. Because really, for them, it's better to keep everyone focused on the Chivo wallets that most citizens only activated to get the sign-on payment and then discarded, rather than explore what is on the horizon with blockchain digitization of Latin America's public benefit systems. Once these skeptics get rid of unregulated predatory crypto wallets, the World Bank can sweep in and give the youth of Latin America, as well as Africa, India, Polynesia, some variant on the Learning Economy Foundation's Sustainable Development Goals Learn Card. In the new blockchain education economy, opportunity youth will play online games and be psychometrically profiled as social impact data commodities while stacking up educational badges and tallying up digital script their families need to survive. And I think this is really important. Again, the stuff that's going on in El Salvador isn't great, but it's the loss leader for what's coming next. And, and these arrangements for the, the conditional cash transfer were put in place in 2007. So, um, you know, they've known for a long time what's coming. And, and I'm sure when they made this arrangement in 2007 that they knew that digital identity and digital wallets would be on the way. So I have screenshots that talk about the social protection project, um, the loan arrangements, 16-year uh, payments. It was entered into in, in April of 2007. It was called uh, the government of El Salvador goes through its Red Solidaridad program. Uh, the social protection program was put together with World Bank support. Um, it was a $63 million program financed uh, by the government. And it was seeking to encourage extremely poor households to send their five to 15 year old children to preschool and primary education, follow appropriate immunization schedule in children under five and take their children ages zero to 24 months for regular health visit checkups. So, um, and it's all linked to conditional cash transfer. And then I have an image of the learn card um, that literally is on the phone and it's linking, it has like a QR code and it has an interface that talks about like having your student ID card, your money card and your passport and earning badges and having that attached to money. So they're gonna have the children, like literally we're talking about child labor, digital child labor. That's why, you know, the stuff that I went into with Derek Bros was so important. I didn't realize how quickly this was going to come to pass. And someone in, um, brought to my attention the uh, United Nations Conference on the Status of Women that's happening next March. The focus is on girls' education, and that's all going to be this educational technology. So they want to leapfrog, um, and now they can with sort of this remote and like last mile networked uh, devices, um, get the kids online, get the ed tech, get them the digital wallets, and tie them into this digital energetic currency space. And like I said, it's these energetic con contracts. It's like these occulted metaphysical energetic con con contracts, smart contracts that are like beyond, yeah, there's the superficial arrangements, but then there's also the energetics that lie underneath. And I feel like these people know it. If you look at Vinay Gupta, you look at the Mormon Transhumanist Conference, you look at Jason Lowe, you know, the, the, this occult metaphysical stuff is woven throughout all of it. Uh, then I have an, uh, a screenshot from the Government Outcomes Lab at Oxford uh, talking about how is Latin America developing impact bonds. That was from February of 2021, so they know that that's getting ready. It, it is these youth that the producers of the mask, like the, the, the play, 
have tapped to do the grunt work of coding and securing the empire for digital conquistadors. No one mentioned that Salesforce has stepped into the NFT space. Uh, there was a panelist, JP Rangaswamy's, that was his old firm. And so can soulbound tokens be far behind the NFTs? Probably not, given the planned role of Salesforce's social suite dashboard services to track uh, social impact finance for ESG portfolio accounting. So we can speak of Bukele, but not of the next iteration where structural adjustment demands poor nations mortgage their children as improvable human capital. We will stay silent about tech companies that operate in the social impact space while maintaining contracts with customs and border control. And in this crypto spectacle, Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert gleefully play over the top villainous, ugly American shilling Bitcoin alongside Bukele, the young malleable leader tapped by digital conquistadors to create the conditions through brutal measures and general payout, uh, generous payouts, no doubt, that will pave the way for a new kind of leader, one who will transparently facilitate the implementation of billionaire-backed universal basic income, an efficient and accountable socio-technical infrastructure intended to enmesh El Salvador's children and their families in Web3 progress, air quotes on that, as digital compliance assets. The greed and crassness of volcano-powered Bitcoin is a perfect foil against which to roll out UBI in an attempt to pull Latin America's robust informal economy into the digital enclosures. One of the more meta conversations involved a two-part discussion of storytelling in the cryptosphere by an actor who grew up in Austin uh, and earned a degree in politics and economics at UVA and became the main protagonist in the show Gotham. It just so happens that Gotham is also an AI data analytics platform developed by Palantir for government agencies. Through its low bono technical assistance uh, philanthropy, Palantir was the third party verifier for a number of early pay for success finance deals in mental health and homelessness. The Gotham actor described crypto as an energetic social contagion. And on that point, I wholeheartedly agree. While some participants situated the crypto discussion within the context of past and ongoing harms to communities of color, the global south, and the poor, few were able to apply those lessons to the new forms of predatory finance that are emerging with Web3 and digital identity. There was talk of exorbitant fee structures, predatory loans, and losses of uninsured assets. What was left unsaid, however, is that hundreds of NGOs, think tanks, and academics, impact management project, are working furiously to sketch out marketing campaigns that seek to legitimize the tokenization of people and the environment as alternative asset classes slash creative collateral for their beautiful blockchain money. Not to mention microfinance schemes targeting aspirational entrepreneurs, often low-income women. Do they imagine we will embrace their green pill regenerative finance pitch with public goods tracked on ledgers so that the machines can see what our communities value? Charles Eisenstein is constantly pushing the sacred economy, but since he's teamed up with SEP, I put Internet of Things sensors in the slippers of wildflower Montessori students to track their social behaviors, Camvar, the former head of MIT's social computing group, how long will it be before we see blockchain impact deals where instead of coins, you have tokens tied to the economic prospects of toddlers? Sadly, I can envision James Heckman, J.B. Pritzker, Paul Tudor Jones, Steve Ballmer, and Stanley Druckenmiller making champagne toasts to that. And then I have a, an image from Cello, a tweet, 
what if money were beautiful from April 30th, 2022, with this guy saying, I'm here to announce I'm retiring ugly money. And I feel like that's what this is about. The crypto skeptics are outlining what is ugly money and they're setting the stage for the beautiful money. Then I have an image that talks about the cameras and the sensors and the slippers at Wildflower Montessori. I've talked about that often. And then I have an image where Charles Eisenstein is working or doing an interview with Sep Cambar about their beautiful money. And interestingly talking about morphic resonance and morphic fields, which is like kind of relates, I think, to this world homeostat and sort of vibratory frequencies. If they entangle you in enough of these energetic con contracts, they get you there. New realities of telepresence and haptic robotic labor were downplayed, even though the plan is for blockchain identity to evolve into an accumulation of digital wallet tokens, subject to review by non-human agents set up to oversee the legitimacy or not of pre-programmed economic and social transactions. We are meant to assume that living under the global brain's benevolent gaze will be democratic, humanized, safe, trustworthy, and accountable. They want us to imagine governance algorithms that know us better than we know ourselves and promise to protect us from unchained life's sinister and exquisite extremes. It is the dark side of the liberal politics of social care to realize the safety, of public, uh, the safety net of public welfare was a setup eventually to be run by Palantir and Salesforce and Microsoft's planetary computer. This program runs on polarity, and it serves the interests of power to tag, trace, and reinforce oppositional ideology. The boxes they have set up for us to make it far less likely that we will question the most basic assumptions of our reality. The progressives can never imagine the government or nonprofits would seek to harm the vulnerable, and the conservatives can never imagine the same of their churches or chambers of commerce. And then I have an image from Sanctuary AI of the remote robots. Work that is safer, more efficient, and sustainable. What if you could get a job done from anywhere without having to be there? Make work safer and efficient. Your workforce can be filled with human-like intelligence anywhere. General purpose robot systems under pilot control. Right, that's these haptic robotics. In my opinion, those at the top are hoping this radio eugenics World War III will be a mostly bloodless coup of natural life where a majority agree to willingly embrace distributed ledger chains of quote-unquote progress as if the behaviorist cybernetic enclosures to quote save the world had been the people's and the patriot's idea all along. The goal is to find the sweet spot where those espousing collective global progressive materialism might be able to strike an uneasy balance with the anti-government free market religious crowd. The producers of this play believe they can thread that needle. Imagine you can zoom out and see it as a polarized emergent structure of domination rather than the ideological struggle the talking heads are making it out to be. In that case, it's fascinating to watch them try. Picture the puppet masters on the left and right contorting themselves in an uncomfortable necessary synchronous dance routine as they attempt to manifest Oliver Reiser's world sensorium, an outcome they imagine will ultimately benefit both ends of the dipole that is global social physics. We've made our way through the exposition phase of this grand Maya illusion, an all-encompassing techno-mask in which the Earth's inhabitants have unwittingly been drawn in as both audience and cast. With the dramatic arc established, we are now enmeshed in structured narratives meant to draw our attention to the manufactured harms of cryptocurrency and ridiculous NFTs. 
I don't mean in any way to dismiss the actual damage caused. The crypto bubble, as these folks like to describe it, has been devastating for both human victims and the environment. Yet anyone who understands how systems of power operate recognizes tactical sacrifices are made to advance ever more ambitious aims. Those seeking full spectrum dominance don't give a damn who they crush on their march into delusions of digital empire, where atoms are replaced by bits that can be shaped the metaphysical whims of billionaire sorcerers and their mad scientist acolytes. We are being pushed towards a climax where the audience slash actors aligned with adversarial parties are supposed to coalesce behind a resolution that will be falsely uplifted as one that restores trust, reinvigorates democracy, ensures freedom and choice, mobilizes grassroots participation, enables shared prosperity, uplifts marginalized communities through the coordinated efforts of a data-driven civil society and saves the world. This is a plan laid out by the same people enabling the continued operation of the world's largest financial derivative portfolios. So Act 1 established the context and set the mood, wealth inequality, technological disruption, social strife, environmental degradation, and anticipated labor automation. And then Act 2 built the dramatic tension with fintech crooks, selfish and foolish speculators, extravagant energy consumption, decadent digital property, and authoritarian puppet leaders. Now Act 2 is where the crypto symposium ended with a cliffhanger. Now my prediction is the final act brings resolution through tokenization of the commons with a shift to green, proof of stake, and next-gen nuclear. Before the curtain falls, there will be agreement on proper regulation of digital payments and property to benefit all citizens of an extended reality in alignment with a global truth and trust commission. With Pierre Omidyar's good ID in place, a world of peace and collective harmonization can then be regulated by the one world homeostat, assuming human rights are respected within the terms and conditions imposed by the smart contract layer of international arbitration. Now, I'm not saying that's what I want, but that's what I imagine is coming. At the end of the two-day symposium, Darren Tsang and Jan Akalin, a youthful management consultant formerly with the joint, whose LinkedIn indicates business ties with Russian firms, announced the launch of a 501c4, the Center for Emerging Technology Policy. Imagine that. They end up with a new think tank. At, <laughs> like, who would have imagined a surprise announcement? Um, now, this new think tank is intended to advise officials by working internationally through public-private partnerships, connecting policymakers with knowledgeable technologists to advance inclusion and strengthen democracy. It's always about strengthening the democracy. An increasingly interconnected world. Oh, my goodness, you know. You know the saying in the Web3 matrix of digital identity and decentralized ledger technology, no one gets left behind to rock the boat or question the presumption that living within cybernetic circuits is a future to which we should inspire, aspire. So then I have an image from their Center of Emerging Technology that again is about, um, you know, 
advocating on behalf of the public interest for a more egalitarian future and democratic institutions, with international experts participating in linking technologists with decision makers, right? And and you you, you know you you're, if you've been paying attention, you know exactly who all these decision makers are, right? With Swift and the Bank of England and J.P. Morgan and Salesforce and Deutsche Bank and you know the, these and the people writing the legal smart contract systems and the metaphysical um, materium makers, you know? Okay, so now raise your hand if you think that BlackRock and the venture capitalists behind the Impact Management Project have invested billions and billions of dollars into creating the vast Web3 cyber infrastructure network to stop harming poor people and save endangered species. No? Well, that's what I thought. <laughs> because it's actually about setting up regulatory procedures to properly measure the harm and enact socially acceptable predictive profiling using evidence-based protocols and digital twinning. <laughs> the game of mixed reality social impact, requi impact requires ameliorating some of the most egregious harms, even as new channels of trauma are devised and branded as solid investment opportunities to benefit global NGOs and faith communities. Austerity, adversity, and crisis drive the impact data economy, opening the door to a new financial system meant to supersede the neoliberal policies that enabled it. The new paradigm will derive value from tokenizing compliant behavior demonstrated through attestations and networked digital agreements. Tokens will be leveraged to, quote, humanize the singularity machine through outfits like Ocean Protocol, the digital exhaust of our biology, intellect, emotions, and social interactions is the supreme sacrifice to the anti-life parasitic force that inhabits the extended reality matrix run on Ricardian contracts and distributed ledgers. Remember, it's all for our own good so we can be safe. That is how HAL 9000 intends to create order from chaos. HALONs with cyber-physical integration that force submission to global sustainable development goals. Meanwhile, pal Palantir's all-seeing eye will be looking on to verify that all is trustworthy and in alignment with BlackRock's wishes. The 2018 white paper called A Declaration of Interdependence Towards a New Social Contract for the Digital Economy by Don Tapscott of the Blockchain Research Institute is setting up this planned future. It is the same vision depicted in the Institute for the Future's 2017 Foresight Roadmap Blockchain Futures 2017 to 2027, a blockchain decade from currencies to computing and the commons, only with a slightly rosier lens. On the one side, they'll be selling Florida and Texas libertarian tech investors on the wonders of DeFi, school choice vouchers, reduced government techno efficiencies and deregulation. While on the flip side, they'll be pitching left coast progressives on tokenized cooperatives, blockchain universal basic income, and digital ID for undocumented people and marginalized communities. <laughs> Decentralized ledger technology is being set up as the winning option across the political spectrum. And then I have a, a screenshot in here from the Institute for the Future blockchain map that's called the, the token-based marketplace, <laughs> that, you know, tokenizing everything in society. Pay, pay per micro experience virtual reality. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that they were already talking about in 2017. The digital conquistadors have unimaginable amounts of money to throw at this, and they are because distributed ledger technology and smart contracts integrated with Internet of Things tokenization is their new empire. 
Now they're not gonna tell you people that living in extended reality means satellites and drones will always know where you are and not just your location. The global computer will evaluate your biostats, your financial liquidity, preferences, and movements in real time to assess and mitigate risk based on parameters encoded in its mechanical hive mind consciousness. They won't tell you that liberation left or right may mean computing, competing for gig work in another country where you are hired by a HVAC air conditioning machine, a machine, not a person. And this radical participatory voting, well, they won't lead with the fact that the machines will have tokens too and legal rights just like people. Information warfare is about deft curation and personalized storytelling to a known audience. So I'm suggesting it is possible to view this two-day event as a storytelling marathon where the pre presenters gave their intended audience one groomed for outrage for several years by many outrageous things associated with Bitcoin and NFTs, what they wanted, which was an outlet to grouse and to demonstrate ethical superiority over the other. And in this case, the others were consistently framed as fraudulent and ran libertarians, sometimes racist, sometimes expats, engaging in dark activities, ducking regulations and taxes to pursue tacky, superficial, self-aggrandizing agendas of greed and chaos. Now, my awareness of the Web3 blockchain space is centered around friends with ties to gatherings like East Denver, where the players, while still enmeshed in the venture capital power structure, craft identities meant to evoke a decidedly more altruistic and egalitarian vibe, with much talk of advancing the common good through shared tokenized assets and redistributive governance protocols. And while there were a few mentions of Ethereum at the crypto symposium, the presentation certainly did not equally interrogate the potential pitfalls of smart contract tokenized progressivism, no, the villain of this tall tale was meant to be the greedy libertarian populist with nefarious intent, not a Silicon Valley multimillionaire looking to hook folks up with tokenized universal basic income so he could cipher off their behavioral data to run futures markets and train his robot army. As I watched the videos and saw big holes in content and what I felt like were strategic omissions in the narrative framing by many people who should have known better, I became angry <laughs> and it triggered memories of a naive Allison who poured her heart into fighting terrible tests that were being weaponized against children in schools only to realize the battle was so much bigger than tests and that one of the key people who'd been set up to lead the resistance, Diane Ravitch, actually had a well-connected venture capitalist son whose company, Rain Group, was heavily invested in alternative credentialing systems and extended reality educational environments. And that was the first time I realized it was not enough to gird yourself against outside opponents. Often the threat comes from the inside, which hurts because you don't want to harden your heart in the face of such duplicity. I made several dozen short clips, one to four minutes each from these presentations, pulling out specific cases where presenters whose background indicated they should know what we were dealing with was far more than Bitcoin fraud and unregulated pump and dump schemes pull punches and direct people away from how the decentralized ledger technology, sensor networks, impact tokens, and smart contracts would be used to upgrade traditional financialized debt products to meet the demands of ESG investment portfolios. And in a few cases, I added scrolling bars that pointed out what was not being said. Only then did I realize the bear I had been poking had ties to the financial behemoths with their histories of corruption, mismanagement, and authoritarian government systems. To look at Deal and saying it might not occur to you that their Boston headquarters was in the John Hancock Tower 
in the back bay, a 1970s modernist nightmare whose stability, the building, is perhaps only slightly better than the derivatives products for which they developed automated settlement systems at a joint. Now my friend Cliff says when confronting such systems, it is best to stand obliquely in a calm firm manner rather than advance in anger because it feeds off that energy and can use it against you. And I had made a tactical miscalculation, a mistake, taking an assertive stance. Mind you, this was a free conference and ostensibly meant for the public good. But Deal responded by asserting copyright claims on three of those clips enough to take down my channel, though the third was simply removed and the final fatal claim was not made. So then I have an image of that. Thus, I continue to hang on to my hundreds of hours of content for the time being. I do have it all backed up. But since I'm not into blockchain media, it's a bit of a puzzle about where to relocate. If I disappear from YouTube, I encourage folks to su subscribe to my blog, see the email box in the sidebar, or send me an email to teamsila, T-I-M-P-S-I-L-A, at protonmail.com, and I will put you on my list for new posts and live streams. Live and learn. I deleted all those clips, and instead of a blow-by-blow, -blow, I gave you a broad stroke overview and I included over 100 screenshots with links in an appendix at the end. Feel free, please, to explore and compare this additional context with the panelists' commentary. Consider what was left out of their narratives. It can often reveal more than what was said aloud. When I started my education activism, I struggled when I shared information on pay-for-success finance and emerging technologies like blockchain identity and wearable technology. It was a rare gift when someone understood what I was saying immediately. And when that happened, you could see the light bulb go off for them as the missing piece was inserted and everything fell into place. That didn't happen often. It was more likely that someone would listen to you. And then in the weeks and months that followed, it was apparent none of the information had any impact on their thinking. They were simply continuing to walk the same well-trodden path. And sometimes I would try to ascertain whether a particular person, where they fell on the spectrum. I had three categories. The first was people who were too busy or stressed and simply didn't have the bandwidth to let the information sink in. That was a large percentage. The second group was people who could understand what I was saying and did have the time and the knowledge base, but simply could not accept it because it would make it too difficult to continue their life without making substantial changes. For them, it was about cognitive dissonance, discomfort, and fear, and maybe a bit of laziness thrown in. Now, the last category was people who knew exactly what they were doing, and they were extremely good at playing their role as enablers of the new paradigm. Trying, often unsuccessfully, to ascertain the degree of complicity in people used to take up a lot of my time and my headspace. But I've since come to realize it probably doesn't matter. We can never fully understand people's motivations the realities they inhabit, or the stories they tell themselves to get out of bed and face the day. Most of us are touched by some part of this domination structure through our own actions or those of our loved ones, colleagues, neighbors, or people in our social circles. The only way to escape the labyrinth is to see it, to situate ourselves, and to make peace with it. Ariadne's thread is there for us to walk out of the labyrinth once we can acknowledge the walls. Look down at the floor and pick it up. Any person can make a goal of becoming oriented to one's position in the tangle of energetic contracts we've unknowingly entered into. Wash ourselves clean of those terrible bonds and step out of the play. But until that happens, we will continue to find ourselves caught in a dramatic back and forth, sometimes the actor, sometimes the audience, 
sometimes a willing participant, sometimes not. So I continue to learn and practice even as I stumble and fall. I was frustrated with many of these crypto skeptics with their inability to see and articulate the clear and present danger that I see. They didn't seem to understand that their event, their focus, their new think tank were designed as a vehicle to bring about a gentler, soul-killing, cybernetic dystopia of tokenized, programmed goodness. Initially, I tried to make them wrong, which was a mistake. I can't presume to know their story. I can only seek clarity in mine. As a mother, I know that securitized toddlers, giraffes, and rivers will never create beautiful blockchain money or green liquid assets. That is not what it means to be a good relative. And I will chant it over and over in the hope that understanding may one day sink into the consciousness of the derivatives traders, the mathematicians, and the blockchain coders of social and environmental justice. And I do believe that can happen because I am not a nihilist. But until then, I will keep lines of communication open, calling on the cosmos beyond the limits of the material in the corners where the barbed hooks of microinsurance can never reach. There, divine chaos sings a song of life and healing. It is there that our hearts are truly seen. And so that is the end of today's reading. The post is the new post on my blog. There's like 150 screenshots that follow that document everything that I said. Because what I'm asking is that you guys take a look and see what you think, right? But, you know, there, there are stories being told, all kinds of stories, and it's up to us to figure out which stories we want to inhabit and where we go with it. <laughs> and, um, you know, Within the problem reaction solution, clearly, crypto, bitcoins, they're problems, they're problems. I'm not saying that the harm isn't real, um, but there is the next phase that is planned. And that next phase is going to be the pendulum swinging back from the greedy libertarian whatever into the progressive tokenized democracy. Like there, there's the pendulum swings. And so I think if we can look at these systems, look at the, especially the influencers, the individuals, the people who are out front, um, the influencers, and try to figure out, understand that this is a play, this is a mask, this is a spectacle. Um, you don't have to make people wrong necessarily, right? but see what role it is that they're playing and what the function of that role is, and then try to extrapolate from there and project forward. Because I think if we can learn to do that, there might be fewer missteps. Um, so anyway, I, I hope that you found this interesting. I hope that when you see um, the pushback against cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, you will maybe have um, a new lens to try on to look at that and see where it might be going and to see if you, I would love to know if there are maybe other people out there who are talking about it in the way that I'm talking about it too. And um, so that like, I keep saying I'm gonna get to it, but the refugee stuff that I wrote about, that is these alt currency, complementary currency, small communal 
like remote work, entrepreneurship opportunities that are going to be coming up. And I, I think that's, they want to frame this as the kinder, gentler, right? A redistributive process based on tokenization. And, um, you know, we, we have to be, I think we have to be ready for it, but it's a learning curve. It's a, it's a learning curve to get there to both even understand how the blockchain, digital identity, cyber physical systems integrate, and then to realize how they're framed on an ideological perspective, and then to be able to sort of look at it clearly for ourselves and figure out maybe different solutions that don't involve social impact finance or BlackRock or SWIFT or any of these things. So um, anyway, thanks for tuning in. Please um, consider checking out the appendix. I would ask, like I don't often, but please consider sharing this with your networks. Like this is one that I think is actually a really important, like I needed to get this documented. I spent about three weeks watching the videos, finding all the people, and thinking really hard about what this meant, like where it's going. Um, so I, I hope it'll be some tools that you can use and, um, and share it and see what feedback you get from people, see what they think about it too. So time, dinner time, so good night everybody. <laughs>